Welcome to Law School Crucible. I'm one of your hosts, James Harris. And I'm Dan Walsh. This was a product of the first generation legal professional and allies student organization at Elon School of Law. But we've rebranded. FGLPA, which let's be honest, is a bit of a mouthful, is now ALPS, the Alliance of Legal Pioneers and Supporters. The purpose of this organization is helping law students navigate new challenges. Law school is tough and we're here to help through this podcast, for example. Law School Crucible is centered on talking to legal professionals and learning from their experiences. On today's episode, we're joined by Professor Eric Fink, who has built a career focused on issues such as workers' rights, food access, and police accountability. He is an alumni of both John Hopkins University and New York University School of Law, and has taught a wide array of law school courses. In this podcast, you'll gain an insider view of a time in American history where we still had these interesting organizations called unions. Apparently, unions are responsible for the 40-hour work week, restrictions regarding child labor, minimum wage, and lots of other things that we take for granted in the workforce today. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. So, uh, just to get started off, we just, you know, want to introduce our listeners to who you are. So, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Okay. Well, I've been a, a professor here at Elon for um, uh, 11 years, I think. Um, before that, I was a lawyer um, and uh, did that right after law school. And before law school, I was for a long time in graduate school in sociology, doing various things. And I grew up in the New York area, I always say the suburbs of the Bronx. Um, and uh, my family were, you know, very much, you know, suburban New York middle class family. My, my dad's family ran a, a small business, a bakery in New York um, that they ran for many generations. And my dad worked there when I was a kid. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of, you know, 60s, 70s, you know, TV sitcom um, kind of upbringing. You know, nothing very um, remarkable. Yeah. Okay, and you went to New York University School of Law. For law school, yeah. Right, right. And you were the first, we talked before, and you said you were the uh, first person in your family to uh, go to law school. Yeah. Yeah, first in my family to go to any kind of grad school first, and then, yeah, first to go to law school. So why law school? When I was growing up, I had thought a lot about going to law school, and my parents... Uh, my dad had wanted to go to law school. That's part of the backstory. My dad had wanted to go to law school, but you know he grew up in a family where he was expected to go into the family business, and so he did. Um, and um, but my parents had always encouraged me to go and and uh, go to law school, and maybe in part for good Freudian reasons, I resisted it for a long time. And I went to grad school after college because what I wanted to do really was be a college professor. Um, so I did that. Um, I did a master's degree um, first, and then I went um, and started to do a PhD. Um, I I got to a point there, I actually went overseas um, with a kind of half-baked idea for a dissertation research um, that when I got there, um, I realized was a really theoretically interesting idea that I had no good practical plan um, to, to accomplish. And eventually I decided I would just try something different. Um, in the meantime, one of the things I'd studied in sociology was lawyers and the legal profession. And my very best friend um, from college, he'd gone right to law school and was 
very successful as a labor and employment lawyer. Um, and the other thing I studied really was industrial relations, industrial organizations. His work sounded so interesting to me. Um, and then I was living at the time with, we weren't married yet, but my now wife, who had started law school already, and I had a, I was kind of semi-employed and kind of bored and reading her books a lot. So I had these sort of three factors, you know. Um, she was telling me, oh, you think this stuff is so interesting. Maybe you should go to law school. And my friend Stuart was telling me all about his work. He's like, that sounds wonderful. And, you know, you're actually helping people, and it sounds really interesting. And I had learned about lawyers, and I thought, oh, that sounds kind of cool. This is a job I can do. So I ended up applying to law school as my kind of escape plan um, from, uh, from grad school. What's the sociologist's take on lawyers? Um, you know, I was saying beforehand, for sociologists or anthropologists, you know, you, lawyers, you can study lawyers like you would study any other kind of social group, you know, tribes people in, you know, Papua New Guinea or something. I mean, lawyers are a, a, an occupational group that are defined by this educational experience that you're all undergoing now, and it has a lot in common with, you know, things like military boot camp, you know, <laughs> we sort of break you down and build you up. Um, we have our own language. We have our own way of looking at the world, understanding the way the world is organized. Um, we kind of divide the world between lawyers and non-lawyers, um, us and them, lawyers and clients. We have a lot of, you know, ways of categorizing people. So I think lawyers are extremely interesting uh, from a sociological or anthropological perspective, especially um, the sociology of, you know, kind of modern society, capitalist society, where lawyers are so important in creating and sustaining all the various institutions, um, economic and political, uh, lawyers are really a central interest um, from that perspective. When you get to law school and you have you know a few different people that sort of to help you out, yeah. what was the biggest thing that surprised you? The, the first big thing, and it was a really big thing, was how it wasn't like grad school. Right. I'd been in grad school for more than seven years, right? And I had that pretty much down. And the law school was very much different. It was first year they told you all the things you had to take. Um, beyond that, there were further requirements. Everyone was doing pretty much a similar thing. Everyone was going to take the same exam at the end. Everyone was looking to get this particular kind of job. And especially at a law school like I went to at NYU, most people, overwhelmingly people, were looking for a very particular kind of job with big law, Wall Street, you know, big corporate law firm, which was absolutely not what I wanted to do. So I found that very strange. I found the academic side of it actually surprising. I thought it was going to be more like grad school, um, less, and, and it was much more structured. I found the exams mystifying the first t time I took them. Um, I, I went to NYU, and I think all law schools in the you know, this is only the 90s, it's not a million years ago, uh, it was very different than what we do here at Elon. No one ever talked to us about exams. You know, professors never told us what exams were like. The only way you found out what exams were like is if you happened to know a two, a, a two or three L, and they told you. And it didn't occur to me to ask, because I assumed, oh, I've been in grad school, and they say their essay exams. I know how to do an essay exam. I walk into my torts exam, my first ever law school exam. I'd been studying for days, and I'd been studying. We lived in a little tiny New York apartment. Um, we had hardly even any furniture, and I'd been, like, reading in bed and stuff. And I had a, my, a complete stiff neck. I couldn't move my neck in any direction. I felt like this is a perfect metaphor for torts, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm expecting to write an essay about 
what torts are or so I don't know what I have I, I I can't honestly tell you what I thought the question was going to be and what I got was a normal torts question three page story about a person's terrible adventures one afternoon in Manhattan and the the several dozen bad things that happened to them and at the end basically saying you know discuss you know and I thought I was supposed to discuss kind of in, in big sweeping theory terms, stitch this all together like a sociology essay, I had no idea what I was supposed to do was say, no, there's 12 different issues here, 12 potential torts here, here's the tort, here's the elements, here's why the elements are or are not satisfied. Um, I just, I didn't get that at all. Um, luckily, at NYU, you know, uh, there's... I was able to, like, get away with that one time, um, and then I figured it out. So I ended up doing, you know, well enough. But it was, that was really surprising to me, um, just, just how academically it was a very different kind of study. Um, and then also this idea of people's aspirations being so different than what mine had been in grad school or what mine were going even into law school, the kind of work I want to do that was very different. What were some challenges that you faced um, because you just didn't know? Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that was something. A lot of the people I went to law school with did have other lawyers in their families, parents, or in some cases, grandparents and, you know, siblings. I had no lawyers in my family. I did have, by the time I went to law school, I'd been out of college for 10 years already. I had my very best friend and some other friends I knew. So it wasn't that I had no clue. Um, and my, you know, then-girlfriend, now-wife, was a 3L when I started, and she also did very well. So she she was on law review at her law school. She was able to. Um, she was a great resource for me. Um, I, I think without her, I never would have figured out that a law school exam is not a grad school exam. Um, and you know, she was the one at certain points would say, you know, just reading and rereading and rereading the cases is not like enough. <laughs> you know, you have to organize this. She told me about outlining and you know things that again, I went to a kind of law school where no one explicitly told you this stuff, and I didn't have family members. Um, and my friends, it wasn't the sort of thing I thought to ask my friends about. I was more interested in what do they do as lawyers. Mm-hmm. And it literally never occurred me to me to talk to them about how did you survive the first year of law school. I never had that conversation with them. So once your first year was done, mm-hmm. how did you? what was your first uh, summer job and how did you find it? So all of that worked out great for me. So when I went, I went with this specific plan. I wanted to do what my friend did. I wanted to be a labor lawyer representing labor unions. Um, it's an area that is interesting, again, in terms of the sociology, the legal profession, and, and you know, to me, because it's an area of practice that kind of straddles the line, maybe, between, it, it's almost it's a boundary blurring, which is a very anthropological thing, right, between so-called public interest and, pri- and private firms. Most of the lawyers who represent, some labor unions have their own in-house lawyers, um, and maybe that's more like working at a not-for-profit, I guess. But for the most part, most of the lawyers who do that kind of work work in private firms. They tend to be fairly small firms, I guess what people now would call boutique firms, um, um, that represent you know various unions. So on the one hand, it's you know to the public interest people, I, it was more like a, fir- a law firm job. Um, but to the law firm people, especially people at NYU who are going to go to big Wall Street white shoe firms and represent banks, like they thought, well, you want to represent like the Teamsters, you want to represent the janitors, like why? Like, and it wasn't even that they thought it was disreputable; they thought it wouldn't be interesting. 
you know. And on the other hand, most of the public interest people wanted to do, you know, go to the public defender's office or go work for, you know, the, you know, the cause um, organization. So I was sort of in this weird um, hybrid space. But I knew what I wanted to do, and I specifically knew in New York, which is a place with still a strong labor movement, there are several firms that do this kind of work. So I knew which, who the firms were. One of them was the one where my best friend had been working, um, and another was um, one where I had another friend um, who was working. Um, so I knew what I wanted to do and where I wanted to get a job, um, and it worked out. Both of my summers, each summer I worked at a different one of these firms. Um, yeah, so my first summer I worked for a, 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 you know, one firm that represented um, various different unions. Um, their biggest client is um, Local 11, well, it used to be Local 1199, the service employees, the healthcare workers union, um, and, you know, several others. And then the second summer I worked for one of the oldest um, labor firms in New York, um, a more traditional one maybe, um, but also represented a whole variety uh, of unions and, and also did a lot of employment discrimination, um, the first firm did mostly just labor. The second firm did a mix of labor and employment. What would you say is a uh, career highlight? There were a few particular cases, and some of them were big cases. There was one case um, uh, that uh, there were actually two cases that I did. A lot of my work um, when I did labor law was representing public employee unions, which don't exist in North Carolina, but in Pennsylvania, where I practiced, are also very um, big. And I actually had two cases where I made new law, right? Uh, there were amb- ambiguous questions under the statute for public employee unions um, having to do with definitions of who could be um, in the union. Um, and I, for my client, won these two cases based on legal arguments that I made about why my client should be allowed to do what they wanted to do under the statute that no court had ever recognized before. As a lawyer, right, that's real exciting because you don't get to make the facts. You don't get to make what the laws are, right? You're given this stuff. Your client comes in and dumps some facts on your desk. You then go into the books and there's statutes and there's cases that are precedent and that are authority and law is bound by that. But the, at least for me, and maybe this is kind of the academic mindset, the exciting part is, as your job as the lawyer is to say, okay, I'm stuck with these facts. I'm stuck with this precedent. Where's a space, right, that I can get my lever in, right, and create a bigger hole to get my argument through? Um, and that's your that's your doing as a lawyer. That's real nice. Um, at least I got a lot of satisfaction um, out of that. And also in both of these cases. They really helped real people. I had real clients who were able to, in both cases, get um, get themselves organized um, and get better conditions at their work. And, and then just overall, you know, not every case that I did was like that. Most of the cases I did were the opposite of that. Most of the work I did was in areas that were extremely well-defined. There were no novel questions at all. The law was very well settled. It was really very mundane you know, processing of cases about here's a particular set of facts and who wins and who loses. Um, And sometimes my client was a person who I felt had been wronged, and sometimes my client wasn't necessarily a person who'd been wronged, but they had a procedural right. I I had a lot of cases representing individuals who'd been fired or subject to discipline, and under the union contract, they had a right to challenge that through uh, grievance and arbitration procedure, right? 
And often these were people who re- they really had done what they were fired for, what they did really was bad, and sometimes the argument was the employer hadn't handled it well or there were inconsistencies. Sometimes it really was nothing more than here's a procedure for ensuring fairness, even though in this case we're probably going to lose, we have an agreement that says someone who's fired at least has a right to a hearing to establish that they really did it, rather than just you're fired, no discussion, out the door, right? So, you know, most of the cases are not the sort of thing that would get into any law book. They're not the sort of thing that you would necessarily boast about. But over the scope of eight years of practice, I felt real good that I helped in a specific way advance a broader cause and a movement that I care a lot about, right? I mean, the reason, you know, the reason I wanted to do this kind of work was partly intellectual. I was interested in this, but mostly political. I believe very deeply in the labor movement and in the rights of working people to organize and advance their own interests. Um, And getting to play an active part of that, um, not at the center, because I don't think lawyers are or should be at the center of that. The whole premise of that is that the workers themselves should be. But as a person who had the privilege of going to law school and having a license to practice law, I got to facilitate for large numbers of workers the just playing out of this process every day so that they themselves had this experience of having a more democratic working relationship. You mentioned that your wife yeah. is a lawyer. Yeah. How is it having two lawyers? <laughs> you know, I know I, I'm, you know, I couldn't imagine having someone else, you know. I will say, I, you know, <laughs> no disrespect to her. I'm not sure that that, I'm not sure that for everybody, it works for us, okay? <laughs> um, it, it has its ups and I mean, on the one hand, it's nice, right? Especially when we were both in practice, um, because we each got it, right? When I had like some emergency or I had to stay late or I had to go in on the weekend or whatever I had to, or, you know, one of, one or the other of us had to suddenly travel. Like, you know, we understood. It wasn't, you know, we didn't think, oh, you know, you're just not prioritizing me. It's like, no, no, we get it. That's, that's what you signed up for. And she also worked most of the time in the U.S. Department of Labor. So we actually worked in related fields. So it was interesting. You know, we knew about each other's work. And that's all always very nice. While I was in law school, it was great to be living with someone who, you know, was a 3L and then starting as a lawyer who'd done really well in law school um, to help me out or sometimes just keep me sane. You know, when you get the, I got my com. I remember I took my com law exam, and it was a take home, a forty eight hour take home. And I thought, it was so nerve wracking. I I wanted to like check myself into the mental ward, and she's like, no, no. She's like, it's just a com law exam. Like you can do this. You know, like just chill. You know, you'll you'll be okay, right? If I had been, you know, living with someone who you know worked in a, a coffee shop or was in sociology grad school, they, you know, wouldn't have. You know, they might have just been terrified. <laughs> um, you practiced eight years. Yeah. And so I know you said originally you were interested in being a professor at a school. Yeah. So so what, I guess, was the transitional point for you? Or what yeah. Back into I, even when I started law school, I did have, you know, in the back and not so far back in my mind that I would do it for a certain amount of time, but I still want to teach. I loved teaching. The whole time... Not the whole time, but at least during the first five years in my first job as a lawyer, I did a lot of part-time teaching because I was in Philadelphia and St. Joseph's University, which is a local university in Philadelphia, happens to have a big labor studies program. They have an undergraduate major and they have a 
kind of continuing ed um, non-degree program for um, union staff and employer, you know, management, you know, like um, um, folks to learn um, practical stuff. So I taught as an adjunct in that program all the time because I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I had originally thought oh, I would only practice law for about two or three years. Uh, people who become law professors usually, on average, don't teach mu- for much more than, you know, two years. Uh, excuse me, don't practice law for much more than two or three years. Um, I ended up really liking the work. I found it really engaging, so I s- stayed in it. Um, I, I changed firms um, because I wanted to have some experience doing a different type of work. But basically, after about five years, I decided, okay, I've done this. I really like it. I've succeeded in it, but I don't really see myself, just at a personal level, the work. Um, at the end, I had to, you know, kind of come to terms with myself that I really am kind of an academic sort of person. And some of the daily stresses of of law firm work and legal work and the constant emergencies and, you know, appointments and different things like that, those were things that I found personally not a good fit for my personality. Um, and uh, one of my mentors at the firm, one of the partners, was married to a law professor. Um, so we talked a lot about this. She said, yeah, I think, you know, I think you've gotten out of this like a lot. And I think it's time for you to go and teach because it's where your heart is and you're going to be good at it. So, um, you know, I, I, I went and did a different kind of work for a couple of years just so that I would see something else. And, um, but that's basically what happened, you know, um, at, at, you know, after about five years or so, I was like, no, that now I'm going to go, this is my true calling. And I'm going to, you know, work my way towards that. Um, the way I basically got there, there's, there's a lot of different ways to become a law professor and the old fashioned traditional way is after law school, you go get a federal clerkship, um, an appellate clerkship. And if you're real lucky, you get a Supreme court clerkship and maybe you work for one or two years for a real big firm. And then you get hired as a law professor. I didn't pursue that at all because it wasn't what I wanted to do after law school. So now another way, um, and more, you know, in more recent years, this has become more common is a lot of schools, including here in Elon, um, we have these various fellowships for people who have been lawyers and want to teach these sort of transitional programs, um, you know, like we have the LMC fellows here. I did a similar um, uh, position like that at Stanford, um, teaching the first year writing course, and the idea was to help people get out on the, on the job market. Um, so that's, you know, that's how, literally how I made the move. What do you like best about teaching? What I like best about being a law professor is the teaching, which I, I suspect, I think if you ask most law professors, most professors for that matter, I, I think, I hope most of them would say that they like and love the teaching. But, you know, t- I think for most academic people, the, the scholarship is, you know, often the bigger draw. Um, I, I like that, too. I enjoy writing and researching and writing and publishing work. But for me, it really is. When I describe my job to people, I very seldom identify myself as a law professor. I usually say I teach law um, because that's what I think I do. It's what I um, love doing the very most. If I was never able to publish another art, if that just became impossible somehow, I would be okay with that. If I was not able to teach anymore and could only do the scholarship, I would be bored with that pretty quickly. Um, I love the teaching because I love working with people who are c- becoming lawyers, right? It's, it's this real applied sociology of law. I get to 
not only see but facilitate this process of educated, smart, motivated, excited people coming in and learning how to become part of this different this different world. Um, so you mentioned that you know you went to school in New York and you mm-hmm. practiced in Pennsylvania up north. Mm-hmm. So what actually brought you down to North Carolina? You know, yeah. um, Elon. It was Elon. So I, you know, I was in Pennsylvania and then I moved to we moved to the Bay Area to San Francisco so I could do my thing at Stanford. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. The weather's perfect every day. And, you know, I, I did that for two years and then um, so law law professor hiring happens in the fall. So in the fall. Um, you know, um, well, I did my I did my um, my fellowship for two years, and the in the second year, in the beginning of the year, in the fall, I went to the con- the hiring conference, um, and I had some interviews, but I didn't really get a, a job offer that I wanted um, from a law school. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just stay here. And I finished the second year at Stanford, and I said, I'm going to go in the fall and do the conference again. But at Stanford, you, you weren't allowed to come back for a third year. Um, so I went to work actually for a firm. I took the California. I had to take the California bar exam. That was that was fun. <laughs> Ten years out of law school, and at you know at age you know like forty five or something. Um, that was a nightmare. Um, but it was I survived. Um, I passed. Luckily, uh, it was the previous year. The, pre, the the dean, the former dean of uh, Stanford Law School, had failed the California. This is a, like a, a super prominent a woman who had won major cases, you know, in, in front of the Supreme Court. Um, she didn't fail because she, you know, she, she was like older and hadn't taken an exam like that, and you know was probably super busy. You know, it's a good lesson for students. You know, even even like a genius, um, if you don't take the time to write your little practice essays, you know, you can't just waltz in there. Even if you're <laughs> Kathleen Sullivan, you can't just walk, go in there, right? Um, so anyway, but I managed to pass. Um, my my students were teasing me, you know, when I was taking it. Um, I showed up at the place, and a lot of my former students were there. But anyway, so I worked at this firm. I went to the conference in the fall. I interviewed with a couple places and I had a, I ended up with a few offers that I was more interested in. Um, so, but I had the year to fill because, you know, you get hired like this time of year. So I finished out the job. I, I, I debated between a few places. The schools that I was interested in, what they all had in common, they were smaller schools. Uh, they were in all different places of the country and there was public and, you know, private and things. They all had in common that they were smaller schools. Schools where people were not overwhelmingly go, looking to go to work for big Wall Street firms, but people who were looking to practice local law, you know, in smaller um, settings, you know, for mostly ordinary people, I guess you'd say. That really appealed to me a lot. Um, uh, we, I chose Elon for two reasons, basically. Partly, um, my wife and I loved it here, you know. My parents, weirdly, had ended up relocating to the Triangle while I was in law school, so we had you know, decided we really liked North Carolina as a place to live. Um, and there were good opportunities for her, too. She was, at that time, had been, uh, had, had a really, had, had already been in a very good career as a federal government lawyer. So um, some of the jobs that I was otherwise interested in were places where there weren't really uh, opportunities there. Um, but mostly it was Elon itself. Um, the, the law school had just finished its first year, you know, um, and that excitement of a new law school really grabbed me. Just the basic idea of this is a brand new place. It's not going to be a place where you come in and someone's going to say, that's not how we do things here, because they hadn't done things here. The whole mission was to do things differently. 
And you had this group of faculty who I met in the interview process, some of whom had been teaching for a very long time. Professor Friedland is one. Dean Johnson is another, um, um, who I met for the first time at my interviews. And others who were brand new, who had just had this excitement. Every, every law professor that I met in this process liked their job and was excited, but nobody had the kind of excitement that the people had here. It's like, we're building a new law school. We have these ideas, and we're going to do it. And that really excited me. And very specifically, uh, one of the centerpieces of the, the kind of vision of the law school was this idea of thinking reflexively about legal education, thinking reflexively about the legal profession, thinking reflexively about how we socialize people into this profession, and about what kind of lawyers our students want to be and what kind of lawyers we want them to be. Um, someone, you know, in, interested in both the theoretical and practical sociology of law, this was music to my ears. I was like, that's the kind. And, you know, and a place that said, we are a place that prioritizes teaching. You know, yes, we want you to be scholars. We want you to be excellent scholars. But we want you to be committed um, uh, to teaching uh, the students. A, a school where teaching first year um, classes is not considered some sort of burden or um, entry-level job, but something that you know um, everyone does because we care a, a, a lot about it. At, at other schools, that's not the case. Um, so that's how we ended up in North Carolina. It was you know, this institution. Okay. And as you know, you know, this podcast is centered around giving advice. So what advice would you give someone who's either thinking about law school or in law school currently trying to figure it out? So I talk to, I guess because I'm a law professor, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are thinking about um, law school or when people find out what I do, they tell me they're thinking about it. I don't want to discourage, I never want to discourage people from going to law school. First of all, it's against my self-interest to discourage people, (laughs) right? But I, you know, I do always tell people who are thinking about it to think carefully and deliberately about it. I said when I was growing up, I sort of thought about it. My parents encouraged me. I I think, especially in my generation and the people in, you know, in the New York covers where I grew up, like being a lawyer, that's a a respectable, good job. Right? It's a prestigious job, and it's a job for smart people. So it's almost like this default. You don't really know what you want to do. Well, you'll go and do law school, and it's kind of interesting, and you'll do interesting work. Um, I think that's not a good reason to go to law school, and I think a lot of people who end up being unhappy in law school or in their legal careers are people who went to law school for no particular reason other than that. I think it, people are, who are thinking about it, think about why. You know, have a reason. And there's no one reason. There's a million reasons. It might be you, you specifically want to do this kind of law. You know, It might be you don't want to do law, but you have an idea of what, how learning law would relate to some other kind of you know, policy work or economic development work or whatever it is um, that you want to do. But you know, have some kind of plan. The flip side, and I talk to people who are in law school a lot about this, is once you get here, remember why you came here. Keep that in mind, but also don't be afraid to change your mind. You know, you may have come to law school thinking, I want to be a criminal defense lawyer, like, for whatever reason. This is what I want to do. And then you start taking your criminal law classes, and they're just not that, you're not that into it. Maybe you go do an internship at the DA's office or the prosecutor's office, and you think, this is just, I don't like this kind of work. It's too stressful or whatever it is. Um, that's okay. That's not a personal failing. Don't just keep on that path because that's what you've said you want to do. 
there's a lot of other, you know, keep your eyes open. During law school, I knew what I wanted to do, and I didn't change my mind, but I also made sure to take some classes that were very, so, you know, I took antitrust, you know, I took, actually ended up taking a lot of courses related to criminal appeals. And almost changed my mind and went and became a criminal public defender. So it's sort of this double edge. Have a reason, remember the reason, but then don't be afraid to change the reason if you find that something else engages you more. So how do you define success? So I think, first of all, the first part of success is knowing what you define as success and not just taking someone else's definition, right? If for you, success means going and getting the big, um, high-paying prestige job, okay, that's your definition, then then succeed. Um, But it could be anything. It could be a particular kind of work. It could be um, just being in a satisfying situation. I mean, it could, you know, it could be any, anything you like. Um, knowing what you define as success and not getting distracted by other people's different definitions so that you think, oh, I'm not measuring up to their success, therefore I'm not successful. That's a, a, a big trap to, you know, for people to stay out of. And then, you know, being focused to say, okay, so you want to do this kind of work? Well, find out how do people who succeed, what did they do to get there, right? And be de- being deliberate. I, 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 there's a lot of people who say, you know, I have this trick or that technique. I, and, and the different tricks and techniques, like, they work. They're important, but they're not really the key. The key is simply being deliberate and thoughtful and having some kind of plan. Then you say, okay, so, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I want to, if your plan, you know, if your goal is I want to get A's or I want to be in the top 10% or whatever, okay. And then there are techniques to do that, but you know, more than this technique or that technique, it's, you know, remembering that that's your goal, making that your priority, being, you know, understanding that sometimes that means saying no to your friends who are going out to having a good time and that that's, you know, that's okay. Um, Or maybe you decide at some point it stops being okay. I'm being so focused on this one definition of success that I'm missing out on other things in my life. And maybe success is you know, I'm going to get, you know, be, get average grades and I'm going to have, you know, a, a less glamorous job, but I'm also going to have my life with people I love and care about. And that's success. Um, you know, so, yeah. So on, on that note, and you sort of sprinkled in a, a few key, mm-hmm. uh, key points of advice, but what would be some major advice that you would give our listeners on achieving their version of success? I mean, you know, in terms of law school itself, mm-hmm. um, I do think, you know, once you make the commitment to go to law school, right, it's a big commitment. It's a commitment of three, almost, you know, here in Elon, maybe two and a half, but, you know, a big chunk out of your life. For most people, at a, you know, at a time in your life, you know, probably recently or fairly recently out of college when, you know, a lot of your friends may be out having a lot of fun, you know, um, and it's a huge, for most people, it's a huge financial commitment, you know, again, depends where you go to law school, but um, I would venture to say, I, I would guess that for a lot of our students in Elon, it, this is a big, you know, this is not easy. You know, I went to law school, a lot of people I went to law school with, that wasn't a big issue. They had families who could afford to pay, you know. Um, but if you're coming here and you're saying, I'm going to spend two and a half years of my life and however many thousands, tens of thousands of, of dollars, um, I, take that seriously, right? Don't fritter that away. Um, and it and it and that might mean okay for this limited period of time, I'm going to have to forego some other things. Be okay with that, and then just do, don't. It's funny, you know. Um, 
it's, it's hard to express this. I, I sometimes think, sometimes, and I'm thinking of myself as an example of this, come to law school and like spend a lot of time struggling against um, the norms. And I'm a normally a person who really likes to push against norms, right? I, I, like, you know, politically and socially, I'm a person who likes to do that and believes in doing that. But there's a certain sense in which you come to law school, you know, sometimes there's just like, things are this way for a reason, you know? Not every, you know, uh, don't don't get so fussy, you know. When, you know, you learn how to do IRAC or CRAC or whatever. Don't feel like you have to invent your whole new little outline way. It's it's not that important. It's just a little technique. Just learn it because it's simple, and just do that. And yeah, it's boring, right? You'll write the exam, and it won't be all that interesting, but it'll be good, you know. Um, rather than saying, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to do that, or I don't feel like, out, I don't want to outline, it takes up too much time, you know. Well, it may, outlining itself may not be the technique, there may be some other technique, index cards for some people, or mind maps, or whatever, but, you know, don't, don't feel like you just have to do it your own individual way. Sometimes just doing the same things as other people, sometimes people do that because it's worked, you know, and sort of creating this extra stress for yourself, um, you know, when it comes to the bar exam, you know, if you look at who succeeds in terms of passing the bar exam, it, it, it's, it's really not that big a mystery. It's time and effort, you know. If you spend the time, whether it's preparing for exams or in the bar exam, just know you're going to spend a lot of time and it's not going to be fun, but I'm going to do this many practice MPRE questions today or this many practice multi-state questions today. I'm going to do this many um, essays this week. Um, just stick to it. Treat it seriously. Really, is it, it sounds simplistic, but uh, honestly, I don't think that the secret's much deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I will say, and it's another thing I like about teaching at Elon. I think the students here are good about that. When I was in law school, we were all terrified of our professors, even the ones who were real nice. You know, we sort of felt like, you know, they're, you know, the culture that was like, oh, they're very important. Coming to them and asking little questions in office hours or something is kind of an intrusion on them. Right? I think it's good that our students don't feel this way. Right? I, I like it. Right? So, you know, it's our job. Right? So another key, if you don't understand something in class, that's my job to help you understand that. Right? Um, and, it, you know, come and ask about it. Don't be shy about that. You know? Um, or don't wait until after the final exam. You know, I don't mind it, right? Sometimes that happens. Student, you know, comes and they don't do well or as well as they hope to in the final exam. Yes, I'd rather they come then than never at all. But sometimes I think, you know, if you had come in October and then, you know, if you'd come every week or a couple of times, you know, you would have figured all this out beforehand. Um, you know, we can't kind of drag um, students in. So, you know. At least for our students, I would say, send this out if students from other law schools are, are listening. I would say, you know, demand this of your professors too. You know, I, hopefully my friends from other law schools won't get, get annoyed with me. But, you know, it, it is literally our job. <laughs> um, you know, and, if, and any professor who makes you feel like you're an imposition on their um, uh, more important priorities, you know, um, just, you know, just don't let that stop you. Yeah. What I think is. This might be duplicative, but just to be careful, what would you say is the biggest mistake that students make in law school? Uh, uh, hurrying. Um, in many, I, I would say, to put it in one word, hurrying. And it's on a lot of levels. So I see it in exams. Right? 
don't hurry, slow down, read the question. If it's a multiple choice question, so often I'll see, you know, a question, whether it's an essay or a multiple choice, and students, they get the wrong answer. If you sit down and talk to them and say, why did you get there? And they explain how they got there. There's a logic to it. And what they did was they were sort of going along in the right direction and they skipped a step or they, you know, Professor Friedland said, made a wrong turn, turn at Albuquerque, right? You've probably heard him say that, right? <laughs> right. Um, and sometimes it's because, you know, you're just kind of rushing. You want to spit it out. I understand, right? It's time you got two or three hours to write this exam, but slow down. If it's an essay, make sure you fill in. I see this in Civ Pro all the time. I give a question on personal jurisdiction and I have someone who would do a good job, but sometimes an excellent job of telling me the minimum context test. Um, and then would say, you know, and here the defendant has or does not have minimum context. And if I talk to that person and say, why did you think so? I could get it out of them, but they don't take the time to tell me. So you say minimum context, maybe you take the time to make sure you tell, what does that phrase mean? That phrase isn't a self-defining phrase. Explain to me what it means a little bit. And then when you say they have minimum context because they did X, Y, and Z that were directly, you know, aimed at the jurisdiction, blah, 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 right? So slow down, you know, there. And slow down over, yes, it's a long time. It's two and a half years. That's how long it takes, right? You can't make it happen any faster. Don't try to do everything at once, you know? Um, just have a sequence and just say, okay, first I'm going to do these things, and then I'm going to do those things. And if you have a, a sort of timeline, by the, end of the, by the end of law school, it's not possible to do everything in law school. It's not possible to do everything you want to do in law school, especially, you know, under our curriculum, that's even often more of a challenge. Um, so... That's okay. You'll graduate law school and you think, oh, I didn't get a chance to take this class or get that experience. Well, no, you didn't, but you made other choices. Um, but just slow down. Don't be in such a hurry. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one of the last questions we have is, what takeaways do you want our listeners to gain from our conversation? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, you know, what I, what I hope people will gain is, uh, this is kind of reiterating what I've already said, which is just for people who are thinking about or are in law school or maybe have graduated and are, you know, in practice, you know, uh, be reflexive, right? This is the Elon mantra, right? Be reflexive, be thoughtful. Um, Think about what choices you're making, why you're making them, um, and, uh, you know, and then think about what, you know, what do you need to do to make those choices work? Or if they're not working, um, thinking about what else might you do to make them work? Or think about maybe why the choice may not have been the best choice, or it might have seemed like a good choice, but maybe just because you made that choice. You know, uh, never stop being self-reflexive, ever, um, is really the big takeaway. So there you have it. We appreciate you tuning in. This podcast is a product of Alps, the alliance of legal pioneers and supporters here at Elon School of Law. Your hosts have been James Harris and Dan Wash. Additionally, this podcast was recorded on equipment provided by Elon Law. Our intro music is the song Lounging by Azo, and our outro music is Wonder by Tom Mish. On the next episode, we will be joined by Dean Melissa Duncan and learn that the charter class at Elon Law walked around our school in hard hats. Not kidding. Review us on iTunes, please. I don't know why, but all the other players out there, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever, they don't matter the way iTunes matters for podcast reviews. So if you enjoyed this, 
go there and take a minute to say how awesome we are. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.